0: And over the period of 2017 to 2018, we started to see that rise of the white supremacist agenda. I and my leadership at the Department of Homeland Security were very clear that we found the ideology behind white nationalism, white supremacy, to be a growing threat. A very common refrain that I was asked was, does the president's rhetoric make your job harder? And the answer is yes. The president's actions and his language are, in fact, racist. Things like, they're good people people on both on both sides, or send them back from where they came from. Those words gave permission to white supremacists to think that what they were doing was permissible.
1: That's Elizabeth Newman, a lifelong Republican who until five months ago served in the Trump administration as the Assistant Homeland Security Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy. This week, she became the latest defector from Trump world to speak out and announced that she will be supporting Joe Biden for president because she could no longer accept the president's divisive rhetoric and policies. We'll talk to Newman about what pushed her over the edge, and we'll check in with comedian and actor Harry Shear to get his take on the Republican convention that just ended on this episode of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
3: And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
1: And we are joined by our White House correspondent, Hunter Walker. Hunter, welcome back to Skullduggery.
4: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: So, interesting finale to the uh, Republican convention last night. The president's uh, more than hour-long speech delivered to that crowd in the White House lawn. We all saw the pictures of people sitting next to each other, not wearing masks in the middle of the pandemic. How did this come about, and what was the protocol for the folks who were there? So
4: there was so much that was striking about uh, the setting for last night's speech. As, as the president remarked uh, repeatedly, you know, he was speaking from the White House. And, you know, there are ethics rules that would seem to prohibit holding an overtly political event like that at the White House.
1: Certainly, well, there's, there's the Hatch Act as
4: well, right? You know. Right. And certainly there's been a long-standing tradition among presidents not to use the White House for events like that. However, of course, under this administration, we have basically seen the Hatch Act you know, never be enforced.
3: Yeah. I mean, I mean Hunter, the, the Hatch Act is enforced by the, ex- the executive branch. I mean, Trump is the law of the executive branch, right? I mean, so the like- likelihood, I mean, I think it's appalling and sets a terrible precedent, but no one's going to investigate him for this.
4: Yeah, No one is minding the store, right? I mean, this is – this is he, he's basically in charge of policing his own ethics violations. And so you get a situation where, you know, we're having commercials for Goya beans essentially in the Oval Office, and now we're having the Republican can- convention and presidential campaign signs, you know, on the south lawn of the White House.
3: Would have been great if he had actually held up a can of Goya beans during his acceptance speech. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean – yeah i mean we're, we're we're close to that we're almost there and and of course, as you pointed out, the other you know wildly unprecedented element of this was we had uh, per the White House over fifteen hundred people packed in on the lawn close together, and you know the vast overwhelming majority of the crowd was not wearing masks and this is in contravention of uh, the trump administration's own policy obviously the the CDC guidelines still say, you know, people should, quote, wear masks in public and when around people who don't live in your household. But also I can tell you, as someone who, you know, just was on the White House complex today, all staff and visitors are required to wear masks when in the West Wing. So, you know, it's not really clear how or why, you know, people were not wearing masks on the lawn last night in close proximity to the president. And this is also coming after the White House has relaxed some of its coronavirus security measures. You're no longer getting temperature tests when you come on the complex. So, you know, that that would seem to be a pretty dangerous situation that was clearly in violation of the Trump administration's own standards.
1: So, Hunter, your overall take on how this convention went for Trump and where the race stands now. I gotta say, looking at uh, real clear politics as we speak, Biden still has a lead seven points according to the uh, real clear average. but you know in battleground states it's only three points betting odds uh fifty two point eight percent now for biden forty seven for Trump that's pretty close what is your sense of where things stand right now
4: well i can tell you you know sources i talk to in the president's orbit uh, are very excited right now they feel like this theme that he's harping on of law and order and sort of chaos in the democratic run cities with him as your last bastion of defense is really really resonating people and i think you're you're very smart to point to the betting odds because i i think that sort of 52 47 that very close spread more closely reflects the reality than the biden seven point bump in the polls and and the reason i say that is because of what we saw play out in 2016 where hillary clinton essentially had a um three-point lead In the polls and and a three point lead, in fact, but that wasn't enough to overcome Trump's advantage in the Electoral College. And so when you look at the state level and you look at the Electoral College points, you know, I think you have to say a Biden seven point lead basically amounts to, you know, four points over where he would need to be to win, you know, discounting that three percent. And that's that's margin of error. So it is a very, very close race. But one thing that strikes me about this sort of law and order messaging that you're seeing from Trump, and I've heard from sources that Rudy Giuliani, who spoke last night and echoed those themes, is, you know, sort of a key unofficial senior campaign advisor who's, you know, pushing that strategy. But it puts the president in this paradoxical position where he's essentially decrying the situation. In his own country and he's running as an insurgent rather than an incumbent and that's obviously how he won in 2016 it's a natural posture to him but i'm curious why people aren't sort of asking the question in his base of like okay you're saying you know this situation in the streets is unacceptable and it's what you'll get if biden is president but the reality is it's what we have now and trump is president
3: You know, I think that's a it's a really interesting point. And I wonder if Trump, because there there was a lot yesterday, I heard it from Ivanka, but others as well, making the point that he's not a traditional Republican. You know, he is against the establishment. He is going back to, you know, the Bannon populist nationalist campaigning against the elites. And, you know, he might be able to pull that off with uh, certainly with his Base, But I wanted to ask you about another kind of seeming contradiction or paradox that Hunter, you and I talked about uh, offline a bit, which is this line that they seem to be walking throughout the entire convention, where uh, on the one hand, kind of trying to appeal to more, maybe more um, moderate Republicans who have probably been appalled uh, by some of his excesses on, you know, issues like race, you know, I haven't counted it up, but I think they had more black speakers, more speakers of color, you know, at the Republican convention than than the Democrats did. And clearly, you know, they went on and on. How many how many of their speakers said Donald Trump is not a racist, giving kind of a permission structure for, you know, maybe suburban voters to vote for him, that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, this very tough law and order message and not reaching out to people who are concerned with issues of social justice and the protests that are going on and the killings of unarmed black men that we've seen over and over again, Kenosha, for example. So that seems like a contradiction, but they are trying to walk that line, it seems to me. Are they being successful doing that?
4: Well, you know, I think it's a question of how we define success, right? And the Democrats are essentially in a position where they need, you know, the Barack Obama coalition. They need the, you know, very high turnout, you know, roughly 80 percent support from the African-American community. Right. I've actually talked to key Trump advisors who are leading his African-American outreach effort. And, And by the way, it's fairly robust, certainly compared to past Republican campaigns. And, you know, their point is, that's a community they know they can't win. It's a stark contrast between what uh, Michael Cohen, who actually led the African-American outreach effort for Trump in 2016, said, which is, you know, he told me then he wanted to win, quote unquote, 100 percent of the black vote. That was obviously <laughs> preposterous. But but the current Trump campaign, which is much more professionalized and robust than 2016, is saying, you know, if they can even add a single percentage point to Trump's numbers in the black community. That's gonna be huge in a race as close as this. And I I think they're right. The question you have posed is is a very good one, which is, is that resonating? And I don't know, you know, we did see all these black speakers, but it was a marked contrast to what we saw with the Democrats where, you know, you have the vice presidential nominee as a black woman. You have all these members of Congress and and mayors who are people of color. On the Republican front, you saw them having to pull out, you know, Jaron Smith, a White House, Staffer, who's an African-American congressional candidates who are not in office yet state level politicians. So, you know, when the Republican Party is looking for validators of color, they have to look much further. And also, as you were alluding to, Trump's own comments on this have been very divisive. And when he's surrounding himself with people like Rudy Giuliani, it's very notable because, you know, I grew up in New York in the Giuliani years. That was some of the initial high-profile police killings of African-Americans in the modern era. And Giuliani is absolutely a, a vilified figure in the black community. So it's a question of whether this messaging that sort of the Democrats have, you know, taken you for granted it could be effective, but can it be effective being delivered by Trump and these sort of lower level voices?
1: Yeah, well, a couple things on that. First of all, I mean, I you know, they did have Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, speak on Monday night. And I thought that was actually one of the best speeches of the convention. And uh, it probably did resonate a bit. Now, We had uh, Matt Schlapp from the American Conservative Union on the other day on Skullduggery. We got a lot of shit for that, by the way, (laughs) as we do whenever we have a a Trump backer on the show. But he did point out two constituencies. He said the campaign, uh, the Trump campaign was going after. And one was African-Americans in the hope that if they could get their numbers into the teens, it could make a difference. I think what Trump carried, what, 8% of the uh, African-American vote in 2016, if they can get that to, you know, 12, 13, 14 points, that is something that is clearly a big part of their strategy. And the other element that he identified, a constituency he identified was Catholics. Um,
3: Church-going
1: Catholics. Church-going Catholics, which I thought was interesting.
3: Yeah, yeah, my guess is that's uh, he's thinking about maybe... Kind of Rust Belt ethnics, the old kind of Reagan Democrats, but I, you know, I that's something new. I had not heard that. Of course, it's interesting going up against Joe Biden, who is a fairly devout Irish Catholic. Identifies as Irish Catholic um, and still carries the rosaries uh, often wherever he goes. So that'll be interesting. What do you think? Well, about I, that? I,
1: I think there it's about the pro life vote and getting out that part of the Trump base. And, you know, clearly, you know, when you think of the stakes for pro-choice versus pro-life, they couldn't be higher in this election, given the Supreme Court, given we've got, you know, one key liberal vote on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is probably not going to be a Supreme Court justice uh, through the next term. And that controls the court. That could be a major swing in control of the court. What we're hinting at as we talk about all of these specific groups is,
4: you know, a real shift in the Trump campaign strategy. Uh, And we did see the leadership of the campaign change from Brad Parscale to Bill Stepien in in recent months. And, you know, Stepien comes from the governor's office in New Jersey. He was a key aide to uh, Chris Christie, and he led the political operation there. And I I covered this at the time, uh, you know, working in the New York area. And it was known as an intensely, intensely micro-targeted operation, where Stepien was going county by county, finding single people, even if they were Democrats or Republicans, who might be you know, willing to back the governor figuring out what they needed and whether it was sending them a flag for their desk or a small program, you know, really doing this kind of artisanal hand tailored outreach. And that's, you know, what helped Chris Christie, uh, a staunch Republican, run a state like New Jersey, which is, you know, hardly a guaranteed
1: red. And of course, if they didn't, and of course, if they didn't go along, there was always traffic problems in Fort Lee (laughs) to uh, bring down.
4: Really worth mentioning that, That Stepien has gone from essentially a key figure in this Bridgegate scandal to, you know, a leading figure on the president's campaign. I mean, Chris Christie himself did not survive that scandal that well, and Stepien was absolutely a key figure in it. But he's taking that micro-targeted approach to, you know, what as we've said is a very, very close election. And what you're seeing is, you know, Trump reach out to constituencies as small as Maine lobstermen with the hope of just pushing the margins, you know, very, very slightly in these areas. I mean, he's going to New Hampshire today, a state Hillary Clinton won by just 0.3. So, you know, these are places and these are constituencies where I think Stepien and the Trump data operation has identified vulnerabilities, where if they can sway just even a few votes, Uh, They can do damage on that electoral college roadmap. And I think, you know, Matt Schlapp is, uh, frankly, being even more optimistic than the Trump campaign when he says, you know, he sees, you know, African-American support potentially in the teens for the president. Campaign operatives I've talked to have said if they could even add one or two points, they know it'll make a huge dent. And I think they are right. The question is whether they'll be able to pull that off.
3: So Hunter, you mentioned Manchester, you're headed up there where the president's gonna speak, but let's let's talk about the speech last night and then I wanna talk about what he's gonna be doing up in Manchester. Uh, you know, I thought the speech was kind of, um, I don't know, it was kind of boring actually for a Trump speech. It was both boring and undisciplined. It was not very well structured. It kind of, it was the, apparently the second longest acceptance speech since World War II. I'm curious about your impressions of the speech but then I want you to talk about what you think he's likely to do in Manchester because I think with you've you've seen with this president and he did it in 2016 that when he absolutely needs to uh, show some discipline. He is able to do it, and that seems to make a difference. But then when he gets out there on the campaign trail and does these rallies, it's kind of Trump unfiltered, all bets are off. What did you think of last night's speech, and what are you expecting tonight in Manchester?
4: Well, I had to write up our story on last night's speech. And, you know, that put me in a position where I was really, like, mapping, you know, all the different points that he hit. And it really struck me. I mean, as much as I could say, you know, law and order was a major theme of this convention. Trump's speech, you know, was all over the map. I mean, at one point he was decrying cancel culture. At another point he was decrying the protesters. He was attacking China. He was making his case that he, you know, built the biggest economy ever and could kind of build it back. There was no single, you know, key line or Theme in that speech. And I think you're always in trouble. In our, in our you know, Twitter-addled, you know, phone-addicted society, you're always in trouble when I can't reduce your political point to a key line or slogan. I mean, you know, Trump in 2016 was so clear. Make America great again. Build the wall. This time, it's really a lot muddier. And that is dangerous. And also, you know, in that hour-and-change speech... A lot of people remarked that he was, quote, unquote, low energy, kind of repurposing the jab that he infamously launched against Jeb Bush in 2016. And, you know, you saw this criticism coming from the left and the right. And I think it was pretty clear that this was this was a subdued Trump. It was kind of odd because. You know, apart from the White House backdrop, this was essentially your traditional Trump rally setting. He was in front of a crowd of over a thousand supporters delivering, you know, an over than a more than an hour long barn burner of a speech. But it didn't have, you know, it was clearly largely sticking to his script. It didn't have those sort of fun bits, you know, like where he's ranting about the shower and those asides that I think, you know, really capture the public's imagination and kind of make his speeches more entertaining than anything traditional politician would be, you know, speaking at over an hour. I think when you actually see him return to the full, you know, Trump rally setting tonight, you're going to see a much more off script, a much more bombastic Trump. I think, you know, a question is whether that sort of split personality nature of the campaign can work and sort of whether each audience who needs to see each type of Trump will you know, be able to find what they might want through all that noise.
1: And I should point out, you're heading to New Hampshire with the president, uh, that New Hampshire is clearly one of the states they are targeting, which they didn't carry last time, but came close on. But they think they might be able to get this time uh, at New Hampshire, Minnesota being the other big one where I think they are going to put a lot of resources in.
4: Yeah, I see a lot of targeting for them in Minnesota, in New Hampshire, Um, also in Maine, which, you know, of course, neighbors New Hampshire and is is probably something they're hoping to, you know, hit with this speech tonight. Uh, But at the same time, I also see signs that are a little more troubling for them, such as a focus on Iowa which Trump won by 16 points last time. And I think any time you see, you know, a campaign pouring resources, a campaign that frankly to me with this micro-targeted approach seems aware that they're not going to have a chance with the popular vote. They seem to be making this electoral college play. And so when you see a campaign like that targeting a state that they had so comfortably in 2016, you know, I think they see opportunities to expand the map but they're also worried about losing some of the states.
3: Yeah, they are playing defense in a lot of states. I mean, one state that Schlapp mentioned was Arizona, where he did not seem optimistic at all. They won that. They won Arizona, you know, fairly handily in 2016, and uh, you know he. He thinks that uh, that Senate race there with McSally, who is way behind Mark Kelly, is dragging the president's numbers down a lot. I mean, I think he predicted they would still win, but he didn't seem uh, terribly bullish about Arizona. So that'll be interesting.
1: All right. Well, uh, Hunter, uh, stay safe uh, out there. Wear a mask uh, in New Hampshire and um, we will check in and see how it goes. Thanks so much, guys, and have a great weekend. We now have with us Elizabeth Newman, who served in the Trump administration as assistant secretary of the Department of Homeland Security for Threat Prevention and Security Policy. She left the administration in April of this year and is now an outspoken supporter of Joe Biden and an opponent of President Trump. Elizabeth, welcome to Skullduggery.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: There's a lot to talk about, and you've done this fascinating video attacking the president on domestic terrorism. But I want to ask you, you served almost from the beginning of the Trump administration in the Department of Homeland Security, starting out as the deputy chief of staff to then-Secretary John Kelly. And then until April of this year, what was the breaking point for you that caused Mm. you to want to leave the administration and speak out against the president's policies?
0: It's a great question. It certainly was an evolution of thought over the years. In 2017 and 2018, there were a number of senior leaders at the cabinet level, even at the White House, that were able to carry out their duties in a way that in the beginning, we felt, the 2017 time frame, we felt this is a part of the education process, he's new to the role, every president comes in and has to learn how to be president, every team comes in and has to learn how to operate within the government. So there was a sense that they were going to rise to the occasion, bear the mantle of leadership. That didn't happen in this case. Uh, it, instead, those advisors were increasingly beleaguered and cut out and pushed out eventually, And as those senior people left, what I experienced is that you had more tinkering with the Department of Homeland Security from White House staff, um, which might not sound like that big of a deal, but in the way that the government is structured and constitutionally is supposed to function, the the president gives the orders and the, the Senate confirmed cabinet members are supposed to manage their departments, not White House staff. White House staff are there to support the president and to help the president with coordinating the government. They're not supposed to be in charge of uh, the day-to-day operations of a department. And that certainly shifted um, when we we saw uh, Kelly leave as chief of staff at the White House. And then when Nielsen left, increasingly, we started to see more hands-on management of the department by the White House staff.
3: But Elizabeth, it seems as if the issue that was of most concern to you during your tenure at Homeland Security was that on the one hand, you had this growing white supremacist threat and threat of violence, which eventually became real acts of violence uh, from extreme groups on the right. And on the other hand, a president and a White House that served him that didn't seem terribly engaged on that issue. And I think the most striking thing that you say in that video is that the president's rhetoric, his language, at least indirectly contributed to some of these terrible attacks in El Paso, Dayton, Ohio, and others. So... Pittsburgh, Talk about the attack Pittsburgh, on the synagogue Pittsburgh. In,
1: in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah.
3: So, tell us a little bit about how that unfolded, and why you say that his language and rhetoric bears responsibility for some of these things that happened.
0: Sure, the Department of Homeland Security started paying attention to what we saw as a, a rising threat: um, the the white supremacist, white nationalist movements. And as soon as we got there, there was a a spate of vandalism of Jewish cemeteries across the country, and we were trying to understand where was this coming from and what was going on? And the more you dug into it, the more you realized that local law enforcement had been seeing um, a lot of low-level crime, but increases in that low-level crime, uh, predominantly anti-Semitic. So you started talking to different people. It wasn't really bubbling to the surface yet. It wasn't big yet, but there had been a shift. They noticed the shift and an increase in Particularly anti-Semitism, but but also just uh, white supremacy type of signs and symbols and vandalism associated with that. Then Charlottesville happened, and it was front and center for all of us, and and, and shocking to America to see people so emboldened to. They they showed their face. I think that's the thing that was so amazing, right? Is that, like they weren't hiding in a white robe, um, and hood, they, they were, they were willing to show their face and speak this horrific hatred. Um, and then to have the president not not even uh, condemn it, but, but somehow try to seek that there could have been somebody that thought that that was a reasonable thing to be associated with that, that, that was just, um, so puzzling.
3: Let me stop you there for one moment. At at that time, you were deputy chief of staff, who was, uh, John Kelly was the secretary he had just left, he, he had, just
0: left. He had yeah he had gone to be chief of staff at the white house at that point so it was Elaine Duke who was the secretary at that so time so w-
3: when you heard the president say infamously now that there are very fine people on both sides how did you react and what was the conversation inside the department of homeland security at at the most senior levels the people around you when that was happening
0: yeah it, it... I mean, the, your first reaction is like, oh my gosh, why would he say that? And then you, you're, again, time period 2017, at the time you're kind of thinking, oh, he just doesn't, somebody needs to tell him that that was the wrong thing to say and he needs to fix it, which is what appeared to have happened, right? He then comes back and says, you know, oh, I sh- you know, condemns white supremacy. That was horrible. It's horrific. Somebody lost their life. And so you kind of just thought he, He's used to speaking off the cuff. That's what he does on Twitter. He doesn't check in with his advisors and find out the totality of the circumstances. So he just misspoke. He didn't understand that, you know, how obviously blatantly white this was a white supremacist thing. this wasn't a I think they branded it as what an alt-right you know, rally or or right to, I can't remember the exact name, but you know, maybe you were giving him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he just thought that it was a traditional peaceful protest and didn't know that they had been saying these racist things. But then he doubled back down after he apologized for his original remarks and went back to them and said that there were good people on both sides. And you're like, "What, what, what, I don't know. I still don't understand that. Is it that you can't acknowledge he made a mistake because he clearly has a hard time acknowledging when he's made a mistake So maybe it was just that or maybe he got advice from Bannon who was still there that you know hey you know part of our base identifies with these people we don't want to we don't I, like I, I really don't know but I found it extremely puzzling and like what we do with most of the things the president, does is you try to ignore the circus, and you just try to focus on the problem. And I got a question a couple of days ago, which is completely legitimate, but why would you stay? Why would you stay when you know that this is a circus? Why would you stay after children are separated from their parents, and, and you you thought that was horrible? And the answer is because I'm a, I'm a security professional and a, an American first, and I wanted my country to be as safe as possible, and there are many people still in the government trying to walk this very fine line of carrying out their security duties to keep the country safe, even though they don't think the president deserves to be president and probably aren't voting for him this November. And they're they're political appointees. But we're, we're literally, the government is being held together by people who are trying to do the right thing. And if they were to all leave, I mean, we've already lost a lot of them. If they were to all leave, the people that are left are not experienced, very young, don't have a security background, and their only litmus test is, are you loyal to Trump? And I'm sorry, that doesn't make you qualified to make security policy decisions and decide whether or not we should go to war or how to make a trade deal. You, you actually have to have substantive knowledge to administer the government. And increasingly, we are losing experienced people to call upon to try to hold it together. But more importantly, the American people deserve to have a president in the Oval Office that doesn't have to have a staff that has to manage around, around him. Like that, that's just not the way our government's supposed to operate. It shouldn't be that you have the experts trying to hold it together.
1: Did you ever raise your concerns with John Kelly?
0: I mean, about which thing—about domestic terrorism or about the whole thing?
1: But, well, both.
0: <laughs> I I won't speak specifically about conversations with him, but I can I can say that. Um, there were many of us that were very concerned by what we saw in 2017. There are many of us that hoped that he would rise to the occasion and were very concerned that we didn't see that happening.
1: You know, what struck me is you were trying to get the department to sort of form and the administration to formally recognize the threat of domestic terrorism, which the people in the White House did not want to accept. They didn't like the phrase domestic terrorism, because it did suggest that some of their supporters were covered by the phrase, and they wanted to call it violence prevention, I think, is what the alternative phrase. And you know, what struck me about this is, remember during the 2016 campaign, when you had that whole argument about the Obama administration's refusal to say the words radical Islamic terrorism, right? Right? And that Mike Flynn and others were saying, this shows if you cannot define the threat, you can't address it. And mm-hmm. it struck me that there's an analogy there with the battle you were waging at Homeland security.
0: I, I had not thought about that, Michael, that's really insightful. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the refusal to acknowledge the threat. And there are lots of, you know, reasons that, that I have wondered the the why behind, you know, you had secretary Nielsen who asked in 2017 for this to become on the, the national security agenda every year, you kind of set an agenda of policy issues to they asked it at the beginning of 2018, she was rebuffed. We asked to have it in the National Counterterrorism Strategy. We were rebuffed. We got a sentence. We got a hook. That was, you know, what we needed to be able to do what we needed to do. But, but in terms of so it was it, not treated us,
1: in terms of policy, what what did you want to do? What initiatives, what mm-hmm. policy goals, not goals, but actual policies did you want to implement that would address this rising white supremacist threat?
0: So the good news is that at the expert level, the, the the subject matter expert level, we made a lot of progress and I'm, I'm very proud of that and there are still people in the government that are working hard at this. There's grant dollars going out should be sometime before the end of the fiscal year that are going to enhance our state and local government's ability to build out a prevention capability that will hopefully be able to help individuals who are on that pathway to violence be identified, get the help they need before they cross a criminal threshold. Historically, prevention in the counterterrorism community has been in, seen as entirely a law enforcement function and has been just that little bit of time before somebody commits an attack. You know, so it's the, the bomb squad that goes and prevents the bomb from going off, or it's the investigatory capabilities to identify the terrorist cell and, and break it up. We realize that with radicalization happening so quickly on the internet, and this is true, started with ISIS, but it is absolutely, the white supremacist movement is using the ISIS playbook. So they are, we have the same problem with uh, white supremacist radicalization. It happens pretty quickly. And law enforcement doesn't have time, nor do they have the ability in a domestic context to track all of these potential threats, and it's really hard to know which ones are actually going to mobilize to that violence. So we designed a prevention capability that we're now in the process of implementing across the country. So that's the good news. We made progress. We made progress because the counterterrorism community took this seriously and prioritized it, despite the, the lack of support from the top. But what else do we need to do that required the president to take this seriously? We need an examination of the laws in our, on the books, as well as a robust public debate about whether or not we want to adjust some of our rules and, and the way that we adhere to the Constitution to be able to go after domestic terrorists here in the country the same way we go after international terrorists. Be specific. Overseas. What, what
1: specifically did you so, want to do?
0: So we have a foreign terrorist organization statute that allows us to designate ISIS as a terrorist organization. We do not have a terrorist statute that would allow us to designate Boogaloo as a domestic terrorist organization. Because you don't have a designation, that means that if somebody that you could do the same act, you could, a person could support somebody, support not actually carry out a terrorist attack, but support somebody that belongs to ISIS or associates with ISIS, and that is considered under US law material support to terrorism. You do the same act in support of somebody that's associated with Boogaloo, that is not illegal. So it makes it harder on the FBI to investigate when you don't have that domestic terrorism designation capability, which um, I, I will pause and say. I'm not, I don't know that that's the right answer. I just think we need to have a debate about it. I think we need to have an honest discussion about with the American people about the nature of this threat about this quite frankly if we would just be honest about it it would reduce the ability for people to be recruited because i think a lot of people people don't appreciate what is happening when they are being recruited but but even more so if you had the right tools that, and give it to law enforcement they have the ability to go after this threat and hopefully reduce some of these attacks but we haven't had that dialogue yet because the president won't even acknowledge there is a problem.
3: Elizabeth, we're having this conversation the day after the Republican National Convention has ended. All throughout the Republican Convention, there uh, was a lot of commentary from speakers about left-wing violence, radical leftist mobs in democratically run American cities and how the left-wing anarchists and terrorists are coming to get you. You are an expert on this subject. It's what you did when you were at the Department of Homeland Security. What is the biggest domestic terror threat or threat of violence? Is it Antifa and groups like that, or is it right-wing extremism?
0: Hands down, right-wing extremism, and that's global. That's uh, Our counterparts overseas started seeing the same thing in 2017, 2018. They were coming to us and the counterterrorism community at the U.S. and saying, hey, you guys are the exporters of this. Can you get your hands around this so it stops being a problem in our countries? Uh, You know, it is three years of intelligence briefings and, you know, singing a lot of interesting stuff. Nobody ever once told me, you know who we got to watch out for? That Antifa. They are going to cause some big problems. Now, look, Antifa has been around for a while They do cause damage to property. They are a threat that local law enforcement and state law enforcement do have to deal with. I don't want to suggest that we don't need to protect property. Of course, we do. Uh, having the right to own property is an extremely uh, American ideal, um, and it's wrong that they are doing that. But when you're looking at what is a federal government job versus an, uh, a state job and a local job, Antifa tends to be in that lower grade of threat um, because their primary, um, historically, the things that they've done have been um, violence against property people. Meanwhile, we have had more people killed by white supremacists in the last four or five years in this country than all of the other threats, including radical Islamic uh, jihadist ideology combined. So if you're just looking at how many people have died and you think that's the threat that we want to spend our resources on preventing, it is the right-wing extremism. It is not Antifa.
1: This uh, 17-year-old with the assault weapons who uh, shot and killed those two people in Kenosha the other night, would you cite that as an example of the kind of threat you are talking about?
0: I mean, it's, it's, uh, gosh, it's tragic, isn't it? It might be. I think we need to see what the investigation shows, but the... I don't know that it rises to the level of what we saw in El Paso or what we saw in Pittsburgh. Those are much, much more ideologically motivated.
1: The militia tie in uh, is, you know, look historically when the FBI talked about domestic terrorism and uh, the threat, uh, the militia movement, which was of Mm -hmm. course very big in the nineties and is apparently still with us was a part of that. Uh, And um, it seems.
3: Well, um, you know, another, another uh, maybe a better example, I, I thought this was fascinating when Mike Pence, during his speech, acknowledged, I guess, the widow of this um, DHS federal agent, yeah. Dave Patrick Underwood, who had been killed. But he seemed to conflate the death of that law enforcement officer with all of the left-wing violence, did not mention that the suspect in that case. A man named Stephen Carrillo was actually a follower of Boogaloo, which is a right-wing right wing group. Right. And uh, there anyway, there was not a lot of acknowledgement throughout this Republican convention that this violence, much of it emanates from the right. But
0: no, that's exactly right. And, and what part of what is frustrating is when you when you talk to people, the people that would write the vice president's speech or the communicators, you know, their job is to communicate a complete disconnect between reality and the facts. Uh, And, you know, well, he told us, he announced that Antifa needed to be designated a, a domestic terrorist organization, which, by the way, as we already discussed, there is no statute to, to do that. So, I mean, I it's amazing. My phone blew up. They're like, "Can he do that?" And you're like, "There's no law that allows you to do that. No, we can't do that." But it is completely a sideshow to distract from the real threat, and it it's extremely dangerous. Um, and but I don't know that the rest of the government. Fully understands how dangerous is it is because we haven't been able to get out and talk about the real threat. And so you find people that really think it's Antifa. Antifa is the one that is killing all these people. And you're like, no, there are multiple arrests that the FBI has conducted in the last few months at these protests peaceful protests where you have uh, right-wing extremists coming in trying to take advantage of the cover of the protest to carry out these violent acts. And they they are trying to start a race war. They're very clear about their ideology and what they're trying to do. And we won't, we won't say it. Uh, We won't call it like it is. And that's a problem.
1: Elizabeth, uh, last question uh, for me. Uh, you did this very powerful video the other day. Will we be seeing and hearing more from you for the rest of the campaign?
0: I, I believe so. I I, um, I feel very passionately, as you can tell, about making sure that Americans are informed so that they have the, the ability to make the right choice. And my faith is, is a very strong part of the reason that I spoke out. And so I hope to be able to share with, with voters that might be interested why and how how i i got to the place of being comfortable for voting for joe biden it's it's one thing to say i can't vote for trump it's a, it's another thing to say that i'm comfortable with voting for joe biden um how i wrestled with um the the pro life issue which is a strong argument and that you'll hear in republican circles vote for the lesser of two evils and when you vote you have to choose based on that pro life Platforms. So those are things, they're, they're complex arguments. They're not, they're not simple. And I think we've lost the ability to dialogue in our country. I love uh, podcasts like this because you do actually get to have exchange of ideas and learn from one another. We need more of that. So I look forward to having that conversation to the extent that it's helpful to people to learn a, a journey and, and what I've discovered and, and came to the conclusions on.
3: Well, Mike's uh, last question was going to be my last question, so I will use my time to promote our colleague John Ward's podcast, uh, since you're on the podcast circuit, called The Long Game. And I think John is going to be talking to you about that very last point you made, which is uh, how your faith informed this decision and maybe informs the work you do more generally. So everyone ought to tune in to... Uh, the long game wherever you get your podcasts and Elizabeth uh, thank you so much for joining us really interesting conversation and we look forward to uh, staying in touch with you we devote a lot of time to these issues so we're looking forward to having you back on again
0: thank you I'd love to do that really appreciate what you guys do
1: We now have with us a very special guest for Skullduggery, Harry Shearer, actor, comedian, satirist, groundbreaking, mockumentarian. Harry, welcome to Skullduggery.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure.
1: So a lot we want to talk to you about, get your take on the Republican convention, which I'm sure you've been watching avidly. So let's just start out there. You watched the president's speech last night. You saw the entire production. Your thoughts?
2: A lot of personnel put this thing together. I saw some of that. And my first question is, on whose payroll are they? We have this whole co- controversy about is it uh, kosher to be uh, doing a political event at the People's House, and the size of that operation. I mean, there were what 1,500 guests seated there.
3: I think they said, yeah, I think they said 1,900, and not not socially distanced. No,
1: and, not at and all. nobody wearing masks that I saw. Almost,
3: almost nobody. There was a yeah. very small number. Were there yeah. a few? Yeah. Okay. But th-
2: that's a, an operation that needs a, a very large crew to pull together, and um, my first question is on whose payroll are they? You know, I suspect I know the answer.
1: Yeah
2: I suspect I'm really proud to have contributed to it, whether I know it or not. <laughs> but it's you know, I, I thought the Democrats I, I didn't I wasn't particularly awed by any of the conventions, and I have to say, Michael, I had been going to conventions since 1988, I believe. Yeah, and so I was sort of personally present as the relevance drained out of them uh, year after year. And I'm wondering now how long the networks are gonna say, well, this is a good way to spend an hour of prime time because these were, I thought the Democrats did a slightly better job of producing a show. I thought that having a host helped. This was more like just a show reel of tapes, you know, uh, with nothing to sort of bind them together except flags.
3: Yeah, yeah. you know, Harry, I was going to ask you about that because as an entertainer, as someone who's been involved in movies and television shows and production, how yesterday's acceptance speech in particular – struck you in front of the White House, you know, with all the gold-tinged flags. And like, I mean, to me, it was a, it was a little gaudy. But I'm wondering, what, it's just one step removed from sort of the Trump Hotel. What, what did you think?
2: It's the it's same sense of taste, if I can, you may use the word, that you see on display at Trump Hotels. It's like the grandest grand ballroom at a Trump Hotel is what it looked like.
1: Harry, I, I got sort of one cosmic question for you, which is, you know, you are a genius of satire. And the question is, how do you satirize a presidency like this one that is almost self-satirical every day? Yeah. You
2: know, there was a very famous satirical songwriter in my youth by the name of Tom Lehrer. and. Sure. In the wake of uh, Watergate in Vietnam, he publicly announced, I can't do satire. It's impossible to do satire anymore. It wasn't him saying, I can't do it. He was saying about the, the cosmos, it's impossible to do satire. Well, as it turns out, satire has continued, despite Mr. Lara's proclamation. My particular recipe for this is you don't have to exaggerate. You just have to edit. You have to observe and edit. So you try to replicate what you're seeing and take out the boring parts and you've got satire.
1: Yeah. Well, and you're doing that. You've got an album about to come out. I think some of the songs have been released, the many moods of Donald Trump. You want to tell us about it?
2: Yeah. Well, the first joke is, of course, there's only one mood, (laughs) which is screw me, screw you.
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah.
2: But um, this is a series of songs that I looked back at the beginning of the year and realized I'd been writing for my radio show. Uh, which on which I make fun of the news. And so I gathered together sort of the, my favorite ones, the radio versions are basically demos and went to the studio in February, right before Mardi Gras and uh, made proper recordings of them. And then um, the plan that I uh, concocted was to do what the kids do, Michael, and drop a single every week, Uh, (laughs) you know? And so, and at the end of the process, For the uh, people like maybe you and me who like their music in a physical object, we will release an album of all of the songs. But basically, they're they're coming out one a week during this politically fraught period. And the songs are sung in the voice of Donald Trump. And so having done the record, I thought, we've got to do some videos. My wife and I were down in Sydney, Australia. Uh, She was touring there. And just before they closed it in the end of March... I ran into a guy who has a visual effects studio and I said, can you make this look like it's Donald Trump singing? Really, really, really look like it. And he said, yeah, I think we can. I got a couple of technologies that I can apply to it. Motion capture animation being one of them. And so we've been working COVID style on these videos. I shoot him here or I shoot my performance here as Trump. And then he converts that into real Trump and we we Skype together once or twice a week, uh, looking at the footage and and editing it across the literally across the globe.
3: I just wanted to point out that uh, we did a, a show. It was based on a new novel by David Ignatius on the subject of uh, what the intelligence professional pr- professionals call Deep Fakes which is these videos uh, that are put together to look exactly like someone and the theory was that those the Russians were going to use those you know to influence uh, the the US election and We did not think, I I did not predict at the time that the first deep fake in the 2020 election was going to be produced by Harry Shearer.
1: This is very very exciting. (laughs) I think we all have to be on guard for uh, uh, Harry Shearer's influence on the election, right? uh, (laughs) Yes.
2: I'm um, engaging in my disinformation campaign just by being here with you. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Well, we actually have got a a clip of um, son-in-law about Jared Kushner, who was prominently there Last night. Mark, you want to uh, play a little bit of Son in Law? So um, so why are you picking on uh, uh, poor Mr. Kushner here? I mean uh, you know he's working hard uh, bringing us Mideast peace and criminal justice reform and uh, and, and the, know, the pandemic and the pandemic yeah
2: yeah. Uh, he's a, a guy whose uh, portfolio expands to the very most distant confines of his incompetence uh, <laughs> And that's pretty yes. remarkable. The first feat of his, which you mentioned, is truly historic. He has managed to uh, conduct and and complete a peace treaty with a country with which we were not at war.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, yeah.
2: In recent history, there were U.S. military operations in the recent, like, last couple of years, where our troops were accompanied by UAE troops. That's how yeah. much we needed a peace treaty.
1: Now, to be fair, it was with Israel. It wasn't with us. And, you know, a, an Arab state making peace with Israel is not a bad thing on its face. It, They've been not...
2: cooperating for years. It was an election stunt.
1: Right. And uh, clearly, you know, his role in the pandemic is uh, is one that is rife for satire, I would say. Um, The guy who has no real background or expertise on an issue was basically put in charge of um, responding. It does appear that the race has tightened a bit since the conventions, um, driven in part by You know, the violence issue, which clearly the Republicans are going to do everything they can to play up, although there is a reality there. We do have spikes in homicides and shootings in major American cities, separate and apart from the Black Lives Matter protests. Are you um, concerned that uh, Trump could actually pull this out? And if so, what would it mean for the country?
2: I think we're in a period where Democrats' trauma is showing. They were so... Blindsided by his victory last time, uh, that they're now, you know, it's like walking through a, a minefield now. Oops, there's one, because they're afraid it's going to happen again. Me personally, I think the difference is before he was a blank slate upon which you could, if you were a voter, impose your desires. The problem the guy has now is he has a record, and it includes 180,000 deaths, a 9 11 every three days. And I think the I'm less worried, therefore, than I think many Democrats are not that I'm uh, what I think I have in common with the general public is a certain lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I think they should do a telethon to raise enthusiasm for him, but which I guess was what last week was. But I'm really impressed by the difference between or I'm I'm struck by the difference between this time and last time Uh, he's carrying around a record. They were trying to, you know, you had Larry Kudlow leading the charge of people treating the the pandemic as a past tense matter, which was notable. But I think people are living it. When you get those numbers, you have people, most people or a lot of people, knowing somebody who has it, knowing somebody who knows somebody who has it or had it. I think that changes the equation just a little bit.
3: Harry, are are you a uh, sort of an equal opportunity satirist? That's the definition of the job, in my
2: opinion. I've known people who, uh, when one party was in power, were practicing satire, and when the other party was in power, they were writing jokes for the president.
3: That's not me. So have you, or will you, satirize Joe Biden?
2: I will if he becomes president. The satirist's job is to
3: make fun of the person with the
2: uh, monopoly, or in this case, the majority of the guns. You know, as long as he's not in power, yeah, I'll make, I mean, listen, he said some really uh, amusing things already. I've uh, spotlighted, uh, play the record player at night. <laughs> and there is a, a, a video which I pointed out to people where he talks at exceedingly a great length about his leg hair, which has available on the Internet. So there's plenty there, too.
1: So one uh, issue that um, Trump and the Republicans are clearly hitting hard is cancel culture. You heard references to that a number of times during the Republican convention. And you actually experienced a bit of that recently. I wanted to ask you about uh, you are known to the world as the voice of so many of the uh, characters on The Simpsons. And I gather there was a, uh, an edict that non-African-American actors could not voice African-Americans on The Simpsons. And you pushed back on that and said the job of the actor is playing someone you're not, which I gather caused a bit of controversy. Tell us about the blowback you got over that and um, how it's uh, played out.
2: I got remarkably little blowback. I was saying that as a general rule, I'm not going to criticize or comment on what goes on at the Simpsons at the in the upstairs offices. But it, you know, every person I've ever played in my career has been somebody I'm not, from Richard Nixon to uh, the two most Christian cartoon characters ever to appear on American television, uh, Reverend Lovejoy and uh Flanders. So uh, Homer's next-door neighbor that's just, to me, a, a general rule of what what one does for a living. You know, there are movie stars, I say, who are exceptions to the rule. They're sort of playing a version of themselves. That's sort of what makes them a movie star. But I'm referring to actors, and, and in particular, character actors. You're always playing somebody you're not. And I, I think that's a truism. What else is going on, you know, uh, and, and I have to say, Michael, for saying that in public, uh, I got remarkably, as I say, a little blowback, although almost every media story about that conversation said Harry Shearer uh, is uh, criticizing the producers of The Simpsons. And so that's why I, I point out to correct the record. No, I'm not. I'm stating uh, my view of the job.
1: Well, I guess the larger question here is Is this an example of cancel culture going too far and getting out of hand?
2: No, I'll, I'll give you an example that in my ken of that. I'm not going to name names, but I have a friend who was uh, newly installed as editor of a prestigious New York publication. And um, about a year into his tenure, he ran a, a set of articles, three articles called The Fall of Men, which were uh, documenting men in the era of Me Too. And one of the pieces was by a, uh, stay with me here now, a Canadian radio host who had been fired because credible instances of sexual harassment of his staff had come to notice. And he was writing, he wrote a piece about what it was like to spend the ensuing year it wasn't, oh, poor, pitiful me. It was not, feel sorry for me or anything like that. It was a really straight, well observed view of what that year was like. And the female staff of the publication rebelled and got the editor fired over that. And to me, that was a, a perfect example of what you might call cancel culture in action, in over, overdrive uh, or overreaction. So, yeah, it exists. I, I, and that's one of two examples that I know of personally. But I think that it, it too, shall pass. I mean, in his case, he lost a very good job. But I think to make it a a subject of a political convention is to say a little bit more about what they're not looking at, like 180,000 deaths.
3: Hey, Harry, uh, sometimes my uh, teenage daughters talk about the Simpsons predicting that Donald Trump would one day be president. <laughs> <laughs> what? T- tell us about what, that. What?
1: What year was that?
2: When that was, was that? that that's a long time made? ago.
3: Yeah, it was in the nineties. I believe it was
2: in the nineties. Yeah. Well, because he was still a joke then. You know, he was this New York loudmouth who uh, <laughs> who had been put on the cover of Time magazine. Let us not forget, in 1993. Why would they do that? Um, <laughs> in reaction to that sort of New York imposed fame for this guy who, if he was a loudmouth in, in Cleveland, we'd never have heard of. But if if it happens in New York, New York editors think it's important. <laughs> I think it was a reaction to all that. If the Simpsons could really predict the future, I think we'd all be at the racetrack.
3: But it was it was funny because it was so outlandish and so improbable, right?
2: And it was. It was it took, you know, the biggest economic fall since the Great Depression for it to become credible. And I think there's you know, it we're not alone. Hungary, Poland. Philippines, to a degree Britain, all have had similar, if not similarly, well, yeah, some, somewhat similarly bizarre uh, leadership changes to the populist right in the wake of the Great Recession. And as we used to say in the, uh, in the days following 9-11, there are dots there to connect.
1: Harry, you mentioned uh, that all your life you've played uh, characters who you were not. I was reminded in looking over your Wikipedia entry that your first uh, movie appearance was as an actor in Abbott and Costello Goes to Mars. Who, who did you play in that one?
2: A little boy. Now, I was a little boy at the time, so that probably is an exception to the rule, but child actors, you know. Right. Uh, almost every, by the way, mentioning that, I think it's relevant to say that as a Jewish kid in the 1950s, there were no rules for Jewish kids. I almost always played an Italian kid.
1: <laughs> but did you go to Mars in the movie?
2: No. You know, Michael, this is one of the great wicked ironies of fate or delightful surprises of fate. Years after I moved to New Orleans, somebody there said, Did you ever see that movie? And No, I was in the first scene, and I watched that, and that was it. You know where they end up going. They clearly don't go to Mars. I said, I have no idea. They ended up in New Orleans at Mardi Gras.
1: Well, everything goes full circle, I guess. Uh, as as did you. Some of us uh, were such, have been such enormous fans of the mockumentaries you made with Christopher Guest. Uh, and of course, we all mourned the loss of Fred Willard this year. But from Spinal Tap to A Mighty Wind to Best in Show, will we ever see another one of your mockumentaries?
2: Well, there, those are chris deserves the possessive there not me i'm an to use that word again i'm an actor in them chris is making noises about being retired and he's having a very good time uh, fly fishing in idaho much of the time but you never know huh. uh, you know if, let's say this if the fish stop biting
3: <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay well i will All right. root well, for that uh <laughs> Uh, apologies in advance for asking a predictable question. You've, you've probably been asked many, many times, but I think our listeners would be interested. I just, you did so many of the, uh, uh Simpsons characters from Mr. Burns to Ned Flanders and Smithers and so many more. D- do you have a favorite character that you did of, of, of those?
2: Well, let's not put that in the past. Let's not be Larry Kudlow
3: and putting right. That- okay. Good point. <laughs> good point.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm going to give you a predictable answer, Mr. Burns, because nothing is uh, fun for uh, particularly, I think, comedians than to play pure evil. And his evil remains untarnished to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, we've we've learned this week that even the guy who's in the even the current occupant, as I like to refer to him, is nice to other people sometimes, supposedly.
1: Sometimes.
2: (laughs) In In private.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although it is remarkable, and uh, not to, to go back to Trump too much, but just all the people who were close to him and who have either ended up uh, in prison or facing criminal charges and have broken with him totally uh, and uh, sought to enlighten the world.
2: Uh, just yesterday, that the one of the great skills, and I, I, I don't think there's there are many in the uh, Trump toolkit is inoculation. He has spent so much time talking about the deep state that any member of his team that breaks and writes a revelatory book uh, becomes evidence of that very particular theory. So he's already inoculated himself against being damaged by those uh, turncoats, at least in the eyes of his cult, because he's predicted it all along. That's, that's that's right true.
1: and you know when you think about it you know if he is inoculated and that's an interesting analogy that you know whether all the attack ads the democrats and the lincoln project and all these other groups are planning to 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 air have already begun are going to make any impact cuz you know he may well be inoculated from everything at this point
2: yeah i mean i first I guess the first glimmer of this theory came to me when, when my wife and I were in England in April, 2016 and a Saturday night, we had nothing to do. We were home watching TV and there was nothing on the BBC was rerunning old episodes of the American version of, uh, the apprentice. They have their own over there. And I said to Judith, look, my, we've never watched one of these. We should watch one. And so we sat down and watched it. And I don't know how many times you've, you've watched an episode of the apprentice guys, but, um, it was startling to me because when I realized that the, for 10 years, this was America's apprehension of Trump. This, uh, the character created by Mark Burnett was who America thought Trump was. And I, you know, sitting in the in the boardroom with the halo light coming from above and the prince and the princess beside him and looking like he's making thoughtful, reasoned and yet uh, speedy decisions and judgments. Uh, and I said to my wife, you, you can't fact check against that. So I guess the first inoculation was the most important that made him seem like a serious person.
1: Well, um, your uh, album uh, that you are releasing in stages, uh, the many moods of Donald Trump could serve as that uh, as a sort of satirical fact check um, for Donald Trump. Uh, you know,
2: I think that's. You know, I think sometimes the most effective way to get a message across is when people are busy laughing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you uh, do a good job of that. So, Harry, I want to uh, thank you for joining us on Skullduggery. And we will look forward to the continued release of uh, the songs from Many Moods of Donald Trump.
2: They show up uh, every week on YouTube. A new one came out uh, today, if today is when you're hearing
0: this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we hope so. Anyway, thanks, thanks a lot.
2: Good, good to talk. Us.